0: Hi, I'm Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, GM and Unifor have come to some sort of agreement what to do with the Oshawa plant, and it will save 300 jobs. Vice Admiral Mark Norman is a free man after charges against him have been dropped. What does that say about government transparency? And the Canadian Medical Association has issued a report saying Canadians are more worried about health care than they are a carbon tax. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. GM and Unifor in a joint press conference this morning announced that the company will invest uh, $170 million into the Oshawa plant to transition it into a stamping and sub-assembly Autonomous vehicle testing facility uh, doesn't save the 2,500 jobs, but does sa- save about 300 of them. Here is audio of uh, the situation this morning in the press conference with Unifor National President Jerry Diaz. Were we facing an uphill battle right from the beginning? The answer is yes. Have we ran out of time? As I sit here today, the answer is yes. But
1: I do not deem it as a failure. Why? Because GM is going to maintain a
2: long-term footprint in Oshawa.
0: All right, to talk more about this, let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor to Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
3: Glad to be here. If, if Harry and Megan have another child, could it be Reggie? Yeah, that's right. Jughead? Well, um, Veronica, you... <laughs> yes. I, well, I think Jughead. The Queen would definitely have a heart attack at that point. That's right. Yeah. But, but Reggie, Reginald, <laughs> Reginald, and British words. You would never know. You never very know. Very British words.
0: Uh, you know, we thought she might go outside of the box here and, and look at. The, and this royal couple—they're a lot hipper. They don't have the responsibilities of Will and Kate. So who knows? Why not? Why not? All right. Uh, your thoughts on this surprise that uh, they've salvaged 300 of the 2,500 or so jobs out of Oshawa?
3: Um, well, maybe not exactly a surprise. Let me just take you back. So when this announcement was first made, uh, late in the fall, just before Christmas time, uh, Mr. Diaz, the head of Unifor, did not take it well. And he, he went anywhere and everywhere to tell the story of how evil GM was. He, he even, he with the union even took out ads during the Super Bowl the first week of February to decry GM as this evil, evil, evil company. Uh, then, in March, all of a sudden, a truce was called. Now, Mr. Diaz is not a person to back down easily or quickly, so I kind of wondered at the time if he had declared a truce is something going on, and I think this is our answer today was uh look Jerry, you know stop stop bad mouthing us out there, allow us to sell some cars and let's see what we can do and that's what we 've got today they're they're keeping he says the footprint that means they're going to own a lot of the land. Nearly 45 acres or so of the land are going to be converted into a test track for autonomous vehicles and maybe even electric vehicles, so they're basically going to build a lovely little road around there. And then roughly 10% of the jobs, uh, 2,600 people employed by the union there now, it'll be 300 people when we're done, are going to be involved in stamping parts and sub-assemblies for vehicles. It's it's a little consolation, and, and I don't want to look at the glass as being empty, but it's only about 10% full.
0: Uh, the difference in these two plants, the difference in the uh, skills of the workers needed to work at these two plants.
3: Well, you know, today, Scott, many of these assembly plants are not just simply taking parts from wherever they are made and putting them together. They're actually making some of the parts on site. Uh, I had the ability to visit the uh, Toyota factory, up in Cambridge uh, last year, and I was actually amazed at how many parts they made right on site. And so I think what we're seeing here is, uh, and I know it sounds like a lot of money, $170 million, but it's actually not a whole lot of money, at least in the scope of a car factory, to probably carve off those parts of the plant where they were already stamping out parts, maybe add some more tools and dyes in there, add some more presses, and turn it more into a parts facility area. Uh, That's really what we're talking about here, and I think for those people working in that part of the plant, those jobs are fairly uh, similar, don't need a whole lot of training. Now, GM also announced today, and Mr. Diaz took comfort in this, that they were going to give enhanced retirement benefits, more money to transition people. The Ontario government has come in on a rapid retraining program and GM has also said, look, we do have other plants in Ontario. If you're interested in jobs there, there's always retirements. We're, we're happy to repurpose you there. But this is still, even at the end of the day, quite a blow to Oshawa. 90% of the workforce that was there is going to be gone at the end of this year.
0: Is this cost effective for General Motors to do this, or is this just a favor?
3: Uh, well i think it's both at the same time scott If you don't mind me saying it that way it is cost effective this is a relatively small amount of money to get a, a big irritant uh, off the table to actually make him now sing from the songbook with everybody else so jerry stop bad-mouthing us tell people that gm is good tell them to buy our cars uh... he he was actually very effective for a little while there telling a story that gm didn't want you to know about uh, so you know they they've kept it in the family and again in fairness to to Mr Diaz by holding on to that property and holding on to the land there is always that possibility down the road depending upon how the market turns that they may find a way to come back to Oshawa someplace if they had truly closed the books and walked completely away from the facility and the land then I think it would be harder to lure them back but since they've already got the footprint there. To expand it down the road might be easier thing. So you know this is a bit of a victory for Mr. Diaz, no doubt about it.
0: So would they have walked away if uh, Unifor hadn't made the stink that they did? I would think so. Yes, I, I think uh, in particular
3: Mr. Diaz, leading uniform, uh, Unifor, excuse me, Unifor, deserves a lot of credit here. Uh, I know both Ontario and the federal government said this is a shame. You know we stand by to help the workers, but. They've known enough working with these companies in the past that once a company makes up its mind, it isn't going to change it. And I should note, they really haven't changed their mind. They said that at the end of this year, they would stop making cars in Oshawa, and GM has not changed that tune. The only part of the tune they've changed is while they're not making cars, they're going to make parts for cars there, or at least some parts for cars there. And that, that's the thing that Mr. Diaz brought to the table.
0: So was this due to the pressure put on by Diaz, or is this just uh, uh, a bigger picture view of, you know, it never hurts to have good relations here with these people for yeah, future I, for future uh, projects?
3: Well, I think that's that's true, and I think also GM looks at the Canadian dollars trading at $0.75 cents U.S. and saying, you know, it's still cost-effective to make these things in Canada if our dollar had rallied closer to $1 U.S., maybe they'd have more of an incentive to turn their back. But, you know, I'm sure Mr. Diaz and his discussions pointed out we have a good, efficient workforce. We've got a good dollar out there. I'm actually surprised today in the announcement that uh, there was no uh, no need for federal or provincial dollars. You, normally, these announcements are matched with, well, we're going to invest 170 million and 35 million of which is tax dollars. This this does not have that subsidy involved either. So, you know, I, I think they just realized there was some value to being here, and there is still some goodwill. Now, how long? I'm not betting long-term on this. This this may have bought you three years, five years. We There's just enough volatility in the car industry that I have a hard time telling you what it's going to look like five years from now. Are we going to be mostly driving electric vehicles? Are we going to be driving autonomous vehicles? I have seen predictions all over the map, Scott. I've seen it from, no, we're not doing electric vehicles because we can't find a way to charge them fast enough, through to 100% electric. I've seen people saying the future will be autonomous. I've seen people say there's no way they can ever get to a truly autonomous vehicle because of the liability questions involved. When the car causes an accident, who gets sued? Right now, if I cause an accident, I'm liable. But, oh, it's not my fault. The car did it. Then how does that handle You know, I've seen every prediction under the sun. So I think for GM, it just keeps their options open in a very volatile time.
0: You talked about government funding. Why not use this as an opportunity to hold your hand out?
3: Yeah I mean that's that's a very good question because I think most uh, Mr. Ford remember Mr. Ford specifically wants to say Ontario's open for business I've thrown the doors open and I I would think he would be happy to add 10 15 20 million dollars to the pot Same thing with Mr. Trudeau. He's facing an election in the fall, uh, an election that many people feel is going to be tough for him to win, at least in Oshawa, to put a vote of confidence by putting some federal dollars in. But GM didn't feel it needed it. And I think that's, again, when it says it's investing $170 million, how much of this is truly net new money or maybe repositioning assets from other places, uh, putting them in there. So it may not have needed very much cash. That's maybe why GM didn't have its hand out.
0: Uh, what, at, this tam- you, uh, at this plant, you talked about stamping, uh, also a test track and, and such. What exactly will they be doing there? Will they be producing parts? Is that, is that what this is about?
3: Yeah, so there's two versions of this. They're going to be making parts. That's, that's just plain stamping out parts from metal, using big hydraulic presses to, to bend the metal to make these things. And then there was called a sub-assembly. So a sub-assembly is where you put together some things. Let's say I put together the components for the windshield wiper, and then I send that someplace where they actually install it in the car. The windshield wipers are not a single part but a collection of parts that I assemble. That's what a sub-assembly is. Those are the two kinds of things they're going to be doing there. The track, by the way, this autonomous vehicle track, which is going to occupy 45 to 50 acres, is in support of GM's uh, testing facility in Markham. So even though it's in Oshawa, they're not building a new... um, uh, facility so to speak a new, new building there but they're going to build the track there so the vehicles can be tinkered with in Markham and then driven down the road and tried out on a test track and these test tracks have all the conditions they have the ability to have wet conditions freezing conditions windy conditions curves of different kinds even different kinds of pavement so they can see how these vehicles perform on the road
0: Uh, Jerry Diaz said a uh, GM continuing to have a long-term footprint in Oshawa. You questioned the long-term viability of all of this. Do you think this is just a a stopgap measure? uh, measure?
3: Yeah, or another way to say it, a stay of execution. I I, I just don't know. You know, I'm going to take everybody at their word. Um, I'm going to take GM saying, "Look, we want to do this, and, and we're here for the for the time being." The problem is, long term, no one can see four to five years down the road. Uh, Scott, I'll say it this way: as I have looked back, there are companies that have failed that I didn't see it coming five years before. I might have seen it a year before, but not five years before. And that's the kind of pressure we're in in a global marketplace. Remember, five years from now, Trump may or may not be president; tariffs may. Or may not exist Uh, Brexit may or may not have happened I mean all of those things have implications and since I can't predict them now with much certainty how do I know what five years looks like so I'll take GM at their word they're making this plant operate like this uh, starting in 2020 and they'll be there I'm going to assume let's start with three to five years hope it's longer but don't be surprised if it's shorter.
0: When GM first announced that it was closing the Oshawa plant, uh, many thought that was it. It was over and and, and questioned Ontario's uh, place in the auto industry. That being said, it was not long ago. The Prime Minister uh, was up uh, at Toyota talking about e- expanding their capacity. So how does this reflect on or what does this say about the health of the Canadian or Ontario auto industry?
3: Yeah so uh, it may come this in a couple of ways I, I think the first thing is we may have overreacted to gm forgetting that gm also had plants in other parts of ontario it was bad news for oshawa but for instance what they were doing in windsor wasn't being changed by it uh... the second thing is that uh, the the ontario car industry or the canadian car industry or the north american car industry is much more than just gm ford and chrysler And so it is absolutely true. If sales of one company's vehicles are not what they're supposed to be, it doesn't mean that all vehicles are down. And Toyota is a great example of a company that was growing. Volkswagen is a company that is growing, uh, expanding its footprint out there. And so what I had said at the time was, As much as I'd like GM to stay in Oshawa, if they can't stay, if they don't feel they can afford to be there, let's go out and do a tour of the other car manufacturers saying, hey, we've got a lovely big industrial facility just sitting there empty in 2020. Any of you interested in coming to North America and making your cars here? And that's certainly what we've seen apparently, and, and Scott, I hate to connect these two things, but apparently there is a Chinese automaker who, at the start of this year, was ready to come to Canada and look for a place to build cars here to sell in the North American market. What a wonderful coincidence. And then, of course, the Madam Mung affair happened, hmm. and that investigation trip has been postponed. It's not been cancelled. It's been postponed. This may still be something we see happen down the road. Maybe a Chinese company will come along. That's the reality today. There is no one North American or Ontario or car industry. It's an international industry and it ebbs and flows on that scale.
0: Obviously, this is good news for the 300 employees that, that get to stay and get to keep their jobs. Would these be employees that would already be there or would these be new employees added to the mix?
3: No, the idea is these would be people who are already there and yeah. and therefore they'd transition to these jobs. It's also a bit of a good news because there's enhanced retirement packages for those people who said, look, I'm 56, 57, 58 I'm not going to go through retraining. Let me just retire. Well, you've got some enhanced benefits. The problem is going to be some of those workers who are, let's say, in their early 40s. They, there's just not enough jobs. Remember, there's 2,200 jobs being canceled, only 300 being saved. Not all of those people are going to retire What are they going to do? Some of them might be able to, if they're very young, say you're in your 20s and relatively single and relatively unattached, you might be able to pick up and move to a plant in Windsor or a plant in St. Catharines or wherever it happens to be. But um, if you're in that 40s, you've put down roots, your family is there. Uh, not just sure what's going to happen to those people. So even with retraining, retraining is only good if there are jobs that you can go into. And that's the question. What will there be in Oshawa to employ these 2,200 people or maybe net 1,800 people when we're done? And that I'm not clear about.
0: Uh, the union keeps membership of 300 employees. That, that's obviously better than nothing. Uh, But again, does keep revenue coming into the union. Uh, Are they doing as much for those people who have been displaced? We talk about the 300 that were saved, but are those ones that have been displaced? Is enough attention being paid to them?
3: Well, you know, I, I think most people don't realize that unions are also a form of a business. They have a revenue stream, which are the fees that people mm-hmm. pay to them, and there's an obligation, a service that they provide to represent them in, in various negotiations. I think, Mr. Uh, um Diaz felt very strongly that if Unifor simply rolled over and and caved into GM, a lot of people would be saying, Well then why am I paying you a thousand dollars a year in dues or whatever it happens to be? Uh what am I getting back for it? So his first his attack, which went for nearly three months, and now this outcome is a way for him to say, Look, you know, this is the value you get from paying your union dues. I don't know if everyone will be happy. Clearly those twenty two hundred people who are not going to have a job at that plant aren't thrilled, but I think they do feel that Mr. Diaz did try whatever he could. And I think the next question would be, can Mr. Diaz join forces perhaps with the government to to attract someone else to come to the area? Maybe there's somebody else who wants to, whether it's build cars or do auto parts or something like that. Can we find something else to go into that void? Remember Oshawa, not only was it home to GM in Canada, but it was home for a long time to Massey Ferguson. Hmm. They made a lot of tractors, what have you there. Both of those industries have gone by the wayside. And I would think there is a chunk of those workers there who just aren't happy Mind you, I'm not sure what the union could do. The union doesn't have the power to make magic happen completely, but Mr. Diaz had to be seen as doing his best for his workers.
0: How much does this hurt the union? As you mentioned, this is a business. They generate the revenue uh, by, by taking dues from employees. The, that employee base drops from 2500 to 300 How How damaging is that to the union?
3: Well, it's a loss of millions of dollars a year in revenue. Uh, I, I'm guessing uh, probably the average amount of union dues at a factory like that is a thousand, maybe two thousand dollars. Twenty two hundred workers, you can easily see this work out to be two and a half to five million dollars that would be lost to them. Um, and that has been a general problem with unions outside of the public sector, private sector unions on balance have been shrinking and losing members because of the efficiencies through technology that we see. We just don't have as many people working in the factories. We've been replacing them with robots and other things. It's only the public sector unions that have seen growth, uh, and you can pick whatever group you want in the public sector who are represented by unions. I think that's an odd, odd circumstance today, although they began as something for the... Uh, Manual labor movement today, they are the strongest in the more uh, mental labor sector, uh, in, the, in the public sector. So uh, Unifor itself is born of a combination of unions, a few unions coming together and saying, look, rather than e- us each have our own leadership, let's merge, we can get our efficiencies that way through amalgamation. And they even chose the name Unifor to be neutral. It didn't it wasn't the teachers, it wasn't this, it wasn't something else, it was more Teamsters, it was just something more neutral. Um, their hope though is to still find relevance and I can remember when Unifor was created, one of the things they wanted to do was unionize people who worked from home. I thought that was a rather interesting idea. How that was going to work I didn't know and I'm not sure how far they've gotten on it, but they're trying to change their face just like everyone else is trying to respond to the conditions of today.
0: Seeing the same sort of thing with the Uber drivers talking about unionizing as well.
3: Sure, sure, or skip the dishes. You know, every new technology that comes along initially, workers are just thrilled to have a job, but then eventually they feel they're being taken advantage of. That's where unions can come in and start negotiating on their behalf.
0: Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, let's move on. Uh, Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. He served as advisors to uh, national party leaders and federal cabinet ministers. Going to talk about Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer giving his first of a few speeches, laying out his platform as he heads into the next election. Want to chat about that with uh, Tim and also uh, the fact that... uh, Well, it doesn't appear. It has happened. Vice Admiral Mark Norman has the charges against him. Breach of trust charges dropped. uh, And that is news that has just broke this morning. Tim Powers is with us. Vice Chairman Summa Strategies and on the line now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
2: No problem, Scott. Yeah, another busy day in Ottawa, particularly with the Norman stuff, but you pick where you want to start, seeing you're the host.
0: Let's start with the Norman because it is the, new, uh, the latest news. It is breaking news. Uh, this case did not resonate as much with the public as the SNC-Lavalin case uh, has. Why do you think that is? That being said, in the end, will they make the comparison of lack of transparency here?
2: Uh, Yes, I suspect that comparison will be made, and a lot had been written and and said about the concern the the Liberals had uh, with this case coming forward during the late summer months, early fall, when the election would be really kicking off. Um, Admiral Norman seems to have, and I've met the man, and I can see why a lot of uh, fans uh, and people who believe he was Uh, wrongly dealt with. Uh, The government or the Public Prosecution Service uh, seems to believe they couldn't get a conviction, so they are choosing not to go forward. And what's really astonishing, Scott, today, which tells you, you know, how concerned the government might be about their future liabilities here. Uh, I had heard Admiral Norman speak about an hour ago in his news conference. Apparently, the Minister of Defense has already said they're going to pay his defense costs. Um, you have to wonder what is next. Because uh, if I'm Admiral Norman, I'm seeking uh, damages from the government for ruining my reputation and career. You think they're going to pay him more than my- at $10 million, or Omar Cotter excuse mm. me, at
0: $10 million? Wow,
2: you know, that... All of that's going to be fascinating to watch, right? Um, and
0: you know that comparison is going to be made as well.
2: Yes, absolutely. But I think for a number of relieved people, and not the least of which is Admiral Norman, I think, you know, Scott Bryson, the former minister, Andrew Leslie, the soon-to-be former MP who was going to testify on Mark Norman's behalf, Prime Minister, that uh, we're not now going to have a court case where the issue of whether or not there was some form of political interference in shipbuilding procurement, all of that is is likely going to dissipate. But yeah, it's, it's still imagine Admiral Norman, uh, who is, as I said, seen as a very credible individual, will want at some point... Um, continue to set uh, the record straight. But uh, not having a court case is probably a good thing for the government. going to cost the taxpayer, but uh, I suspect the taxpayer won't mind, given the way many feel um, Norman was unfairly treated.
0: So the prime minister's office just trying to get this out of the way before an election, get the damage done now?
2: Well, to be fair, and there's no evidence of any of this, uh, and I, I can't think the government is that daft, um, that, that was the public prosecutor, the, the same public prosecutor who decided not to who uh, decided not to give SNC Lavalin a DPA, a deferred prosecution agreement, who decided not to proceed here. Um, she, of course, as we know is is independent um so she and, and and others in this in the prosecution service clearly believe they couldn't make the case, so they have decided not to pursue it um, no again, I want to be fair there's no sense that there was any political interference um however there is a sense that uh the, the liberal government i've heard pierre Pollier of the conservative critic come out and say this uh pierre uh, that they have were very unkind in the way they treated mr norman admiral norman and did significant damage to his reputation so i think that's where we'll see this debate go uh, the damages to his reputation the active role Um, some will say the Liberal government played in all of that, but no sense that there was political interference per se in changing the decision from prosecute to not prosecute.
0: What about, uh, we heard uh, Norman's uh, attorney talk about trying to get information that they were withholding. It had taken them a a while to get that information. Uh, Why was that the case? And if there isn't enough to make this stick, why charge?
2: All good questions. Uh, On on your first question, uh, that was a constant uh, complaint of Marie Hennon, excuse me, the lawyer of uh, Vice Admiral Norman. Uh, I I remember seeing all manner of excuses, national security, uh, the need to go through a number of different vetting systems. I mean, you try at the best of times to get government uh, information sensitive government information from the federal government anybody who any of your listeners have tried access the information the normal channel will discover at on its best day it's a snail's pace so uh But oh, Hennon's point was, look, I'm trying to defend this guy. You've brought some serious charges. This is a man who previously was seen as a man of great integrity, 38 years in the military. And you can't get me this uh, information. He deserves a right to be heard. Um, so that the, the processes, I think, again, there'll be more questions on that. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, it, it's ever evolving. The second question there was, sorry, yes, I answered the first one, didn't answer the second one you asked me. Uh,
0: l- l- let me ask you this: Does, compared to the SNC Lavalin case, this case did not seem to have the public's attention? How will this resonate with the rest of Canadians?
2: Um, uh, well, it it won't have the same re- of resonance, I don't think, because it's not going to move forward. Had it moved forward, it, it may have been, uh, somewhere some arguing, more damaging to the government because more political players would have been brought forward. Uh Hannon is a very skilled and capable advocate. I'm sure she would have painted a picture of how others, not Admiral Norman, had been active here in, in directing things. So it not moving forward is, is a good thing. Uh And I think because it didn't move forward, it didn't have... The resonance per se of snc It did get some attention here in ottawa because of people like scott bryce and andrew leslie and others being involved in it um and because it involved procurement military procurement which is always a huge topic uh, but i think it had more complicated trails to it that everybody wasn't prepared to follow at this juncture but that would have changed had there been a trial but no trial so Maybe a bit of a break for the prime minister today.
0: How does this? How does the prime minister sell this now?
2: Uh, I think probably by the size of the check they write to Mark Norman. Uh, again, I go back to that amount. Uh, I, I think here is a guy who's come out of this looking exceedingly credible, who's done nothing but serve his nation, who I think will be framed up, and right, rightly so, in my view anyway, of trying to make sure that the procurement process was done right and proper and uh, there there was no interference. It was done based on all the best information and what the the Navy needed. Uh, So I think um, how the Liberals make amends with Mark Norman, he can go back into active service. Uh, You can't imagine that that's going to be a comfortable place for him, but Mm -hmm. I heard him say, you know, he's always served the military and that's what he plans to do, Uh, but I think they have to again write a check for the damages that this man has been subject to again in my view and that has to be more than 10 million dollars or at least 10 million dollars because that is the comparison that will
0: come forward to omar Mm -hmm. cotter will he get his old job back and would he be happy if with anything less than that
2: uh, he's not going to get his old job back as the number two guy. Uh, I think he's probably going to assess what he's going to do. I mean, he's a, a man whose own uh, whose whole life has been about the military. I can't imagine he's going to want to vacate that right now uh, unless maybe there's a posting for him that's coming. Who knows?
0: All right, let's move on to uh, Andrew Shear. He's uh, laid down the gauntlet in the in the campaign uh, and going on, uh, uh, given a, a first of a series of major policy speech, uh, speeches. Your thought on how these are being received, or this has been received so far?
2: Well, I think they're just starting. I, yeah. I think it made sense to start with foreign policy because there's been so much uh, said on that, particularly the relationship with China. I think Shear is doing something that, if I remember correctly, uh, Justin Trudeau did in opposition, which is you're not too close to the election, but you're not yeah. too far away either. So you come out and you begin to lay down markers of difference. Uh, and one of the big markers of difference Shear is trying to make, at least in yesterday's speech, was on world affairs. Uh, you'll remember the prime minister um, in his early days the prime minister was sort of seen as the heir of the progressive mantle of Bill Clinton in his heydays and Tony Blair in his heydays and uh, the the conservatives are arguing well uh he's he's fallen flat as those other two eventually did as well and that's the contrast Shear's is looking at this also leads into the economic argument because as you also know um china is uh, stopping our canola shipments and that has huge impact on our western farmers shear is from the west gets elected in the west and i think he wants to make sure that that the people see that and know he's standing up for them as well, too. So uh, a reasonable good first start. I don't think he made any major mistakes. He had one controversial item, not super controversial for Conservatives, and that, of course, is moving the Canadian embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. You go back to Joe Clark promised that in 1979, and sadly you and I are old enough to remember Mm. who Joe Clark is, Scott. Yes. I think the challenging speech, though, for him is going to be, or the one that will get the most attention is probably on climate uh, and the environment. He's going to do that, uh, I think, in a few weeks' time. Uh, I think it's not simply enough, even though there's a lot of popularity out there for acts for carbon tax. He's got to say more. Biggest voting cohort in this election, uh, it's going to be millennials if they all vote. I think they're going to want something more than carbon tax is bad, and I think he recognizes that. So that's the one I'll be really looking to see what he comes forward
0: with. How to. does he combat the PM's attack on climate change? Because as you mentioned, this, is, this has become a major pillar uh, for the liberals. Oddly enough, there's an interesting... Uh, um, a report coming up from the Canadian Medical Association, uh, th- th- hoping that leaders put more emphasis on health care. Uh, the survey yeah. that they've done said 53% are worried about health care comparison to 20% worried about the carbon tax. Uh, how does Sheer counter this attack uh, in regard to well, lack she, of a plan? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think if you remember again dating ourselves here, but in '06 Harper had five priorities right going into that campaign. One of them was ending wait times on the wait list, so he can he can do something around healthcare like that. But we all know, like the environment, making quick change in healthcare uh, policy and and actual actions is exceedingly difficult. But I think he can focus on a few key areas on the environment. I I, I think he's he's got to talk about as Ontario have tried to do with Rod Phillips all right, you're not for carbon pricing, we get that, but what is your plan for climate change? You know, even uh, Doug Ford, excuse me, who was here in Ottawa not that long ago after the flooding uh, admitted something was happening. I I don't think this a climate change denier by any stretch of the imagination, but there's got to be something on how we reduce our carbon footprint it may be a return to some of the stuff harper was working on uh... which involved technology transfer which looked at industrial trade-offs um, those types of measures but they can't just be passing references because i think he will get uh... Uh, get, get a little tattooed on that and, and he's already got the conservative voters like the hardcore conservatives, all they want to hear is carbon price, but he's going to need another 7-8% to 8% of the population I think they're going to want to see a little bit more, that may not necessarily be their central issue, but they're going to want to see that this isn't just some reactionary populist rhetoric that's going to come from Andrew Scheer. Uh
0: It seems that the liberals are uh, uh, almost to the point of hysterical when it comes to and this is my opinion, when it comes to talking about climate change. I remember when Kathleen Wynne was campaigning in the Ontario election and came out with a a list of top five things that were priorities for her government and then remember looking at a series of polls over the next couple of weeks and there wasn't very many similarities between what Kathleen Wynne was important to Kathleen Wynne's liberals and what was important to Ontarians. As as much as, and I'm not a climate change denier, but as much as we are, uh, we all know that climate change is important and we must have a plan for it is it a top three or top five kitchen table issue um with canadians and are are, are the liberals burning a hole in the carpet with this
2: uh, it's not a uh, you look in our polling company abacus it's not a top five issue and what we've seen about the hysteria it works on both sides that you know there's a you, I, probably thousands of your listeners, or hundreds of thousands of your listeners, Scott, how dare I underestimate yes. that, uh, are, are all kind of listening and looking and saying, look, we know something's wrong, but we also recognize there needs to be transition. And, and this is what the data shows, that what's your plan for transition? Everybody recognizes, or not everybody, but most people recognize that there's an issue. But when you go hysterical to your question... People kind of zone out. So yeah. when you're going hysterical, you're kind of preaching to your crowd, and it, it's not necessarily seen as uber-credible because you do look like you're overreaching, and that was the problem
0: Kathleen Wynne had. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Suma Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Are you getting exhausted? Are you getting fatigued? Are you concerned about climate change but tired of just the fire burning rhetoric that seems to be floating around uh, from many political parties in regard to whether it's a carbon tax, climate change, or what have you. And uh, I I think most Canadians are concerned about climate change. I think most Canadians want to preserve the planet for the next generation. However, I'm, I'm starting to feel a little negativity around just the constant barrage of the planet is coming to an end and if Canadians don't fix it, we're all screwed. And I just think it's got to the point where it's becoming fatiguing to Canadians. I think it's a concern. I think it's something that, that again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, they want to preserve the planet for the next generation, but I'm not sure it's the number one kitchen table issue for the majority of Canadians. And I I hark back to uh, the last provincial election and Kathleen Wynne's campaign and and her putting out uh, a a series of issues that she felt was important to Ontarians and that her party was running on. And and then over the course of the election campaign, you'd get all kinds of other polls from various companies saying, well, this is what the kitchen table issues were. And for the most part, they're the same health care, uh, education, jobs, the economy, that sort of thing. Um, uh, uh, but none of, of what Kathleen was preaching way back when and called us bad actors for it seem to be uh, on the list of of important items for the average voter. And it appears to me that the prime minister and, and the federal liberals are taking a page out of the playbook. And I'm wondering if they're really actually listening to what Canadians are saying or just running with one of the pillars in their campaign and just going to keep hammering it and hammering it and hammering it and hammering it until uh, we either get sick of it or, or we, we buy in. And I think the problem with something like this is it, when that happens, when we start to overreact and fear monger around it, it makes, it starts to make people, it starts to make people cynical on the whole issue which then becomes a disadvantage. It then becomes destructive. So uh, it'll be interesting to see as the election approaches between now and the fall and, and what goes to the top of the list as the most important or the most pressing issues uh, for For uh, Canadians, Uh, the Canadian Mental, uh, the Canadian Medical Association commissioned a report on how much of a priority some issues were for the election. 53% of Canadians are worried about health care. And that's comparison to 20% uh, worried about a carbon tax. Uh, uh, just reinforcing, health care is the number one issue in the upcoming uh, federal election. Here's what the president of the Canadian Medical Association had to say about all of this. They're
3: concerned about overcrowded hospitals. They're concerned about long wait times. They're concerned about governments balancing their budget by, by cutting health care services. And so as... Canadians as the Canadian Medical Association, we think it's time for some bold federal leadership.
0: All right, let's bring in Mike College, head of Ipsos Canada and is on the line with us now. Mike, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
1: How are you today, Scott?
0: I'm doing very well. Thank you uh, for for asking and for part- uh, participating today. I- I've got an a- I got to play devil's advocate right off the top here, Mike. Many will say, "Well, this was a survey that was done specifically for the Canadian Medical Association, so it's bound to skew more in their favor." How would you answer that?
1: Uh, it, well, it was done for the Canadian Medical Association, and we're we're pretty upfront about who we who we do our work for. But healthcare has been, if you look over our polls, no matter where we ask it, how we've asked it, we look at list of top issues. Healthcare has been a, a top issue in terms of coming to the top, raising Canadians' concerns. I think what's different in what we asked about this one is we sort of peeled the layers off and asked a few more questions and got at sort of the root of that healthcare. And and, and you heard Dr. Osler say, you know, Canadians are concerned about cuts. Canadian concerns about it's it's become a, a bit about affordability and long-term concern about will it be there for me when I need it. And so there's a bit of a shift there in how the Canadians view the healthcare, uh, their healthcare concern.
0: Uh, most Canadians, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, and, and many have challenged me on this, but I'm thinking most Canadians are concerned about climate change one way or the other. Uh, most want to help preserve the planet for the generations that are coming after us. But are you seeing signs that Canadians are getting fatigued over this, that um, that uh, they're being sort of berated over and over again about what they have to do and, and being made to feel fearful about all of this?
1: I don't know if they feel, I think they feel fatigued. I don't know if they feel berated. Um, I think they're fatigued with the political bickering. I think that you're right there's on on the the climate change issue there's a pretty common front that something needs to be addressed and and we need to do it the problem breaks down to is how we address it Mm -hmm. whether whether a carbon tax is right or 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 wrong depending on which side you're on for those who are struggling with affordability issues people who are commuting people who are lower lower edge of the income are saying you know what i can't afford it on top of everything else so it's a real concern and it does ring true for people who are a little more affluent a little better educated who are looking at the longer term say, Well we must start to act now. So that's the divide you see in the in the debate and no one's brought those two together to have a conversation about where we can meet in the middle. And I don't think either of oh, the part, any of the parties, <laughs> depending on what side they're on, really want that right now because it's a nice, nice dividing issue for them right now.
0: Absolutely. It's a question to which there is no answer to right now. So, therefore, they do not have to commit either way. So, in your mind, do Canadians feel this is a distraction? This is a distraction away from handling the big issues like health care? Well,
1: I think the the, the big issues like, like health care um having a long-term plan i think in general having a long-term plan and a long-term focus for the government people are are seeing that worried about the direction of the country and and less satisfied with where we're going in the long term I mean, short term people are saying, you know what when i get into this health system i get access it's pretty good um but when i start to look down the road i think you're going to have to cut it in order to deal with some of your deficit issues you know whichever stripe of government comes in i think there are going to be cuts i'm worried that uh pharma care is not going to be available for me i'm worried about my job status and that I'll lose my medical insurance, those kind of things, and I'm going to have to pay out of pocket down the road. So that's the kind of concerns that people are starting to say, how are you going to start today to address those things in the future?
0: What issues do you think politicians are making the most hay about today? What is the issue, uh, you know, as we're in May, waiting towards, uh, moving towards a, a fall election, what do you think the political parties seem to be hammering home most?
1: Well, I think you're going to see the 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 the, the left uh, hammer on climate change, hammer on those concerns, appeal to that long term those viewers the uh, or those viewers those younger voters, uh, and I think you're going to see the the right run and say, you know, it is a tax. We don't like taxes. Um, you know, we may want to solve climate change, but we don't trust governments with our money. So even on something like set aside climate change, an issue like single use plastics and that kind of thing. We'd rather reward the market and say we'll go and spend our money with those companies we think are doing well rather than see a, a tax on single use plastics because once the tax goes to government, people are questionable where to how it's used the efficiency and the effectiveness of it being dispersed back to Canadians or back to business to solve issues
0: again it's this sort of feeling that government is supposed to save us rather than the people itself um, <laughs> and and and, and Getting back to what you were saying about the issues as tax or or certain things that actually reduce pollution, reduce our f- footprint, this sort of thing. Uh, for example, let's take water bottles. I mean, plastics a massive issue. Uh, we see it in the oceans and in in the footage we're seeing there and such, and and whatever's being spread on social media. Uh, do you think Canadians would be happier if someone said? Hey, if uh, plastic water bottles are that big an issue and they're killing the planet, why don't we kill them and just stop using them? Would Canadians be happier with that than oh, you can use them? Let's just tax them.
1: I I, I don't know if they'd be happier, um, but that would be the kind of bold initiative that I think would get attention. And same, similar, if you go back to healthcare, right? Canadians are looking down the road, seeing these problems and seeing these concerns. You know, we asked sort of a range of emotions on healthcare and 6 in 10 were negative nervous afraid distressed and only about 4 and 10 have said i'm confident or proud optimistic it's a big change from how we view healthcare as part of a sort of that iconic view and canadians are looking for someone to step up and make some bold statements around some of these issues and say you know what here's an actual plan let's debate it let's discuss it let's put it in the window and have a serious discussion about where we're going in the future not uh look for the quick hits you know and the uh the, the jab at our opponents on, on you know, short-term files.
0: So uh, do you get the impression people are looking for uh, systematic solutions here that will solve problems rather than let's just tax you? I think people are, and I think the problem becomes, <laughs> as,
1: much, as much as they want those systematic, they want to have the discussion, Canadians aren't aware of what's available or what the options are, and they need some education we need to have a discussion about that and debate it. And it's very hard in today's climate with social media, with sort of a more retail politics, to have that, that more of a concerted discussion.
0: Uh, talk a little bit about more about your survey and, and, and the medical system in general. What are Canadians looking for? What are they concerned about?
1: So they're, they're concerned, as I said, that um, the, the governments are going to cut back on, on health care because of the, sort of the debt loads and deficit loads that they're carrying right now. They're worried that as they look forward to the future, um, we're going to see um, um, longer wait times, a shortage of health professionals, crowded hospitals, sort of that that system under stress. And it, it's going to get worse because of the, the need to cut for cut back on balanced budgets because we've been down this path before. We've seen governments run up deficits. Anybody who's over the age of 45, you know, lived, lived through that era where we saw governments run up deficits and then have to, like, federal government pass it on to the provinces, down into the system, and see hospitals close around the country. Those kind of cutbacks have happened, and that still rings true for a lot of Canadians.
0: Uh, politicians, and I've heard them say this, will say that, you know, if you want to really help health care, you, you reduce the load of patients going in, and climate change and pollution is a good way to to help the health care system. What would, you, what would you say to that?
1: Uh, personally, I'd agree, but I haven't heard any politicians Preaching that or discussing it. They're mostly slapping each other back and forth on tax or no tax, you're a denier, you're not. Um, so they've shortened the debate down to a very simple sort of three or four seconds. That's a longer explanation. When We went to talk to Canadians about that. You can have that discussion with them, but it takes some education. It takes some time for them to understand how those things can happen. And that's not the discussion we're having around climate change right now. It's uh, denier versus taxer
0: you're right it's extremes it's one or the other um what what are and again not so much with this survey but but ones that you've done in the past what are generally the top priorities for canadians going into an election
1: well as i said this time it, it looks like there's a bundle of issues around uh, affordability um so we see health care at the top we see that the general health of the economy we see taxes come up um those kind of things the canadians are saying gosh you know what and I'm questioning the value of taxes, but it's really getting hard to make ends When we would go out and do focus groups and talk to Canadians and say, you know, um, how do you feel in inflation rates? They say, you know what? I have a job. We're at a record record low in unemployment. There's lots of jobs out there. They're not great jobs, um, but I'm still not keeping pace. I'm 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 barely saving, right? Let alone doing something aspirational with my money.
0: Uh, how do you think or do you think this will become more of an issue as we move more towards the election? Do you think there will be more types of, of surveys like this that question what are the important issues for Canadians and are political parties matching them?
1: I, I think you'll see more. Obviously, you'll see more surveys as we get towards the election at yeah. that season. Um, the interesting thing, and I think the reason the this, this CMA, the Canadian Medical Association, wanted to get out, talk to patients, and put this on the agenda is they would like to see and I think the Canadians would like to see a party take the lead on this and say, here's our long term plan for healthcare. care. Here's some real initiatives in the window of things that we can do, whether it's pharmacare, whether it's on the health human resources side, whatever those issues that the parties think they need to put forward and say, that's our plan for the long term and let's discuss it. And the hope is that other parties will try to match them. I think the party that does that at first and clearly articulates it can have a significant advantage. We see 60 percent who say, I'll vote for the party that has the best health care platform. It's higher amongst women, higher amongst older Canadians, people we know who are going to vote. Uh, so I think there's an opportunity there and, and we'll see which party takes, uh, takes that
0: up. Are you surprised at these results at all?
1: You know, I'm surprised a bit in the shift towards how much affordability has started to sink into people at mm-hmm. a time when the economy the economy looks pretty good. I set aside you know, some of the recent fluctuations in the stock market. We're at a 43-year 43 rec, 43 record low in unemployment, right? Mm-hmm. And that used to be the standard. If you have a job, you're okay. But people are saying now, yeah, I got a job, but it doesn't have the pension that it, or it doesn't have mm-hmm. pension at all in some cases. It doesn't have the benefits. And when they look down the road and they say, sort of, where are you going to be 10 years out, about half of us say, you know, status quo, probably worse in our financial situation. And that's a scary place to be if you're, you know, if you're 50 and you're looking, I'm going to retire and you think my situation is not going to get any better. Um, You know, we look down the road at sort of the change in the job market, reskilling technology and what it's going to doing. And, you know, um, people feel like they're treading water. Um, You know, they can hear what's coming. They just don't know how far they're going to fall over the falls down the road.
0: Uh, well, uh, what are you guys going to be doing next? Can you give us any sort of information of what's coming uh, on the horizon from Ipsos?
1: Uh, we're out all the time checking on uh, on checking on on federal vote, doing work for folks like the Canadian Medical Association, trying to take the pulse of issues. I don't have the next thing coming up yet, but we'll we'll be in touch.
0: I'm sure there'll be lots between now and election time. Mike College has been with us, head of Ipsos Canada. Mike, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Have a great day. You too.